0: I'm joined by my partner in this podcast, Elliot Cohen, who is the Robert Osgood Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, where he and I both profess from time to time, as well as the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, great to be with you again. And please introduce our special guest for today.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Eric. And as always, uh, terrific to be with you. So uh, today, it's uh, a little bit different. I think listeners to this podcast know uh, sometimes we do current events. Sometimes we do people who've written works on national security. Occasionally, we take a deep dive into history. And today, we're going to be doing literature with uh, my favorite literature professor, uh, Professor Elizabeth D. Samet. She is a professor of English literature at West Point. I want to say at the outset that anything she says in no way whatsoever represents the opinion, opinions of the United States Military Academy, the Defense Department, or the U.S. government. She um, uh, is a graduate of Harvard and Yale. She's written a number of wonderful books. I want to highlight three in particular. One is A Soldier's Heart, which is about teaching uh, literature at West Point to young men and women who are going to go off to war. Um, and uh, Professor Sammet has written quite movingly about What that experience is like. And I think, of course, both Eric and I've had a bit of that experience as well, teaching people who then go off um, and find themselves in combat. I want to highlight two other uh, books of hers, which I've found particularly powerful. One is an anthology, it's the Norton Anthology on Leadership Essential Writings by Our Greatest Thinkers. And, you know, usually I don't have a particularly high opinion of uh, most books on leadership, you know, particularly of the Uh, you know, 17 Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun variety. But this is really quite a powerful and deep anthology drawing very deeply on, on literature. It is really quite wonderful. And then the other is this massive volume, which I have on my desk, The Annotated Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, which is, it's a beautifully produced book, I have to say, but it's also just an extremely carefully annotated edition of the memoirs of one of America's most interesting, perhaps more misunderstood generals. And very nicely, it's endorsed by a whole bunch of other generals, including General David Petraeus, who we both know quite well. And we're here to discuss those books and what does it mean to teach literature to military officers, what it's like to be an academic in the military world. Uh, But in particular, to discuss her most recent book, Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness. So first and foremost, Elizabeth, welcome to Shield of the Republic.
2: Thank you so much. Glad to be with you today.
1: What I'd like to ask you to do is first just say a few words about what is the book about and what motivated you to uh, write it. And then Eric and I would like to discuss it, but also other matters with you, if we might.
2: Of course. I found that it's helpful first to give a sense of what the book is not, and it's not a history of World War II. As you've already noted, I'm a professor of literature, not history, although I'm deeply interested in history and attempt to be as responsible as I can in matters historical. The book is not an argument that our participation in World War II was unnecessary or unjustified, and it's not an attempt to diminish either the cruelty or the crimes of the regime's Ultimately defeated by the Allies, or the significance of Allied victory and of the post war liberal international order. Instead, the book is an investigation into the ways in which our really complicated participation in the Second World War, a participation that we often forget was belated and reactive rather than proactive, has been distorted and distilled into the stuff of a far more palatable myth. And that myth reached, I think, its zenith at the time of the 50th anniversary celebrations of the war, which nearly coincided with the first Gulf War and which with which which gave an example of, a, of an overwhelming American military might. And that was an event which, in the words of then President Bush, the first President Bush, helped to erase once and for all. What he called and he, and others called it too, the Vietnam syndrome, and I think at that point in trying to erase the Vietnam syndrome, coming back to World War II became particularly important in constructing this myth. But I think what happens when you when you look at the mythological view of what has been come to be called the Good War, and you think about the Greatest Generation, that we forget that World War II was really an aberration in so many ways. Um, Including the existential threat posed by fascism, and I think the unequivocal necessity of our participation. The myth, and this is what the book explores specifically, the myth turns consequences of the Allied victory. And the most, the consequence that we love to take credit for, of course, is the liberation of Europe from Nazi tyranny. We tend to ignore the Pacific theater because it is far more complex as a story the myth turns that consequence into an animating cause of our participation. And, it, and the, so the book explores the way in which that happens and in which our celebration of ourselves as righteous liberators came to obscure the truth that Americans, many Americans, were wedded to isolationism in the 30s as a result of the First World War and ignored the rise of fascism. Some even celebrated Lindbergh probably the most famous among them. But the myth omits all of those details, um, and in particular, our initial reluctance to enter the war on behalf of liberating anyone. Um, The other things that it ignores is our callousness toward the fate of European Jewry even after the war, which is demonstrated by our administration of the displaced person camps, and our exportation of Jim Crow segregation to post-war Europe. So those are the sort of fundamentals of the book.
1: Thank you. That's a that is a terrific summary. I think it's probably going to be fair to say that Eric and I, both of whom are very much admirers of your work, are also probably more skeptical about some of the arguments here. Uh, but this is done in the spirit of what sound conversation should be about. Let me begin by saying some of the things that I think are very powerful about the book. You really have this extraordinarily extraordinary command of a lot of the literature of the post-war period, just described rather broadly. And you also do a lot with the movies, The Treatment of Hollywood uh, Gives the War. I think one of the things that strikes me about it is that if you look at the contemporary writing about the war, it's quite frequently grittily realistic. So I'm thinking of Ernie Pyle. Uh, You could think, say, even cartoons like Bill Malden. Uh, Bill Malden's cartoons are not particularly romantic. But you know it's not just Ernie Pyle, who's very well known, but even say people like Richard Tregascus, who was a terrific journalist, and then movies that were made about people coming back so I think you know it, it is pretty clear to me at any rate that you're talking about a phenomenon that you believe kicks in really quite late, and that as you say, culminates around fifty years after the war. I suppose one question to begin with, and I've got a number of others is isn't that true of most wars so if you look at the civil war the romanticization of it and in particular the i mean the really Henness lost cause interpretation of it but also the some of the romanticization on the union side doesn't kick in for i think it's closer in but like about 25 years after the war and wouldn't you just say that that's actually a pretty standard phenomenon in war
2: actually i'd say certainly the romance of the Civil War and the idea that wars are romanticized after they're fought is perhaps not uncommon. But essentially, the the Civil War, the Southern Memorial Engine, kicked in right around 1866. Um, And so I think it actually happened much earlier, and I think it was extremely thorough. Then, of course, after Reconstruction, it gathered more momentum, gathered momentum again in the 1930s, um, and again in the 50s and 60s uh, as a counterweight to the civil rights movement. So I think it's gone through different iterations. And I think now we are uh, just perhaps emerging or seeing uh, the real damage that it has done, that it wasn't a sort of harmless, nostalgic remembrance of that war. The difference, I think, between what happened to Civil War memory and World War II memory is that, in a sense, the lost cause nostalgia in the Southern uh, in the southern Memorial Engine erased what was, at the time, the acknowledged cause of the war, acknowledged on both sides, which was slavery. And that was somehow erased, and it became states' rights, and it became this sort of fraternal uh, war that was then reconciled, and we have the big reconciliation movement. What's happened to the World War II memory is that at the beginning, I think a lot of people and the, the government felt this way even months after Pearl Harbor when it felt that the country had kind of lost interest in this. That cause was actually a very difficult thing to pin down at the time, more difficult. Hence all of the propaganda. And I use propaganda as not, I mean, I think that that's any messaging that a government does. I'm not saying it is, it's necessarily um, full of lies, but it certainly emphasizes one narrative over another. But I think that it is only later that people have attributed to those who fought World War II a great deal of clarity about cause, about liberation. There are those studies at the time that suggest most of the combatants um, who were asked whether they how many of the four freedoms they knew, for example, a government survey, and, and very few of them knew any of them, um, and almost no one knew all of them in this survey. There were there were all sorts of there have been subsequent studies about the ideological uh, content of, of various soldiers' um, beliefs. And we found even the, the War College did a, did a study comparing World War II soldiers with those of the, um, the recent wars, more recent wars, and suggested that World War II soldiers had less intense ideological commitments.
1: I guess here's, um, this is leading me into one of the areas where I'm a little bit uncomfortable. And that is, you know, you begin saying, I'm not an historian, I'm a a student of literature, but in a way you're, I mean, you just made an historical argument about motivation. And, you know, there's lots and lots of materials that are out there on that. You know, we now have a vast storehouse of oral histories. Uh, There's also, you know, and you can do comparative studies, including with the civil war, where this has been an issue as well. I guess one of the things that struck me at the very opening of the book where you talk about what what you're looking at and you said well I am particularly I'm especially concerned with those observers who express doubt or confusion ask questions or otherwise complicate our pictures of the war for they illumin, illuminate at once the power and perils of myth making is there something of uh, selection bias there i mean if and I, I understand you're not writing as a historian of combat motivation but but, but I guess I I couldn't help but notice that you so for example you you quote Glenn Gray's very interesting book uh, The Warriors which is an inter- is an interesting book but a number of people have argued and I think correctly that he's actually doesn't he's not necessarily a representative soldier and to really get at that you would have to dig very very deeply into all kinds of both contemporary materials and um, and follow on materials so so which is it I mean do you do you claim this as a historical work or is it a little bit more like Edward Wilson's um, patriotic gore about civil war literature? Edmund, I should have said.
2: Well, I mean, you mentioned history. I think um, sociology is also important. I mean, some, many of the studies uh, done at the time were sociological studies. I, I use those. I think about those as in, as important, as not unrelated to the creation of myth. You talk about oral histories I think it's important to know how those oral histories change so that what a soldier thinks at the time he or she is fighting is often radically different uh, from 20, 30, 40 years down the road when that account is sometimes larded with romance, not always, but there is often a change there. Um, I look at contemporary um Concerns, concerns expressed at the time, I mentioned one, the government's concern by, I would think, uh, I think February um, after uh, Pearl Harbor, about a concern about messaging, a concern about how do we describe this war, how do we get people to stay interested in this, to recognize this as an existential threat. Um, so I, I try to use contemporary work and also to look at various expressions. Um, I look at everything from the, the part that you didn't read, the sentence you didn't read from, from what you quoted, was that I look at everyone from um, fervid patriots and jingoists to those who are deeply skeptical. But ultimately, I am less interested in one narrative or another than in deepening and complicating the story. And my model for that is actually Studs Terkel, whose work in 1984, so around the 40th anniversary of the war, when he published The Good War, the transcripts of the interviews he did, runs the gamut and, and does not attempt to reconcile diametrically opposed accounts. Even within the same interview, You get at once a deeply patriotic statement and a deeply cynical one. And I think the preservation of that contradiction, the preservation of this multi-voiced account, that's what's been drowned out. And that's what I attempt to uncover. Because so much of what has been drowned out has been drowned out by the what I'm calling the 50th anniversary narrative. I think that's why you find in this book a lot of those other voices.
0: Elliot, let me pull on the string a little bit here, because I have some of the same discomfort. It may be because I live near Fredericksburg that as I read your book, I kept thinking of Robert E. Lee's comment about the Battle of Fredericksburg, you know, it's well that war is so terrible, otherwise we should grow too, too fond of it. And in in some sense, you know, the demythologizing um, that you do in the book, I think, serves a very, uh, you know, useful purpose. I mean, Sherman's more pithy comment, of course, that war is hell is always something that uh, people should bear in mind whenever we're talking about war, either as policymakers or historians or uh, literary critics. But that being said, I found myself troubled by the notion that You know, as you say, American soldiers didn't have an ideological view of of the war. And I say that because I think Americans tend not to be very ideological at all uh, to begin with, which doesn't mean that even though they couldn't name the four freedoms, just as most Americans can't give you the 10 First Amendments to the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, doesn't necessarily mean they somehow didn't know what the war was all about notwithstanding all the complications that you know that you point out i mean how do you deal with that kind of complication because it it seems to me most americans are not don't have completely coherent ideological views but they would know the difference between dictatorship and and democracy at some fundamental level
2: i think john hersey makes that point um when he's uh writing about Marines in the Pacific and he asks them why they're fighting and immediately becomes vaguely embarrassed that he asked that question. And they say things like blueberry pie. And, and he says, you know, this is their way of not talking about bigger ideas, but it's also that they fight to get home and they fight. This is where I think the, the danger of, of romanticizing is, is a problem in that if you ask, and I have, talk to many of them. If you ask people who are in combat, they will tell you that what they are thinking of first and foremost is, short, is short-term survival. And if they are responsible for a group of soldiers for the protection and and the, um, the health and welfare of the soldiers for whom they are responsible. And there really isn't time uh, to Concern oneself in those moments of exigency with why one is there. I think it's also the case that the myth has turned everyone into a volunteer. In a sense, we know that that's not the case. We know that many were drafted, and who could blame them for that? My point is that World War II soldiers were more like the soldiers of other wars, I think, in many ways than we than we now admit. And that that's okay. I'm not casting blame for that. That they were motivated by a a wild number of things, and that's often the case. That no that no just cause is fought. I mean, Shakespeare has this insight, as as Eliot knows that that no just cause is fought um, with what he what um, Shakespeare calls wholly unspotted soldiers. I think that's the phrase. The idea that they were all righteous liberators. Is again, and, and this, this was my introduction to the book, that we've confused consequences with causes, and that doesn't mean that they weren't involved in a noble cause. That doesn't mean um, that they don't know the difference between tyranny and liberty. But the idea that this, that they they were righteous liberators, has the, subsequently been used. That rhetoric has been used to justify. Wars of choice to justify wars that had nothing to do with liberty.
1: Well, if I could just jump in there, but I guess, and again, uh, you know, I think that, I think it's a good book, so I I don't want you to think I'm being hypercritical, but but I I as I read this, particularly towards the end, I did find myself wondering. Um, there's a essentially a critique here, I think, of the Iraq War. Uh, and of course, you've had students who you've sent off to war and some of whom I presume have uh, never come back or came back, you know, maimed in, in body or spirit. And I know well how that affects a teacher, a committed teacher, which is what you are. And, and I, there's a part of me who just wonders whether that's, not that it's changed your views, but but, but it it's moved us a bit away from a, a study of the World War II generation and what they really were all about. And it becomes part of a larger, more contemporary political argument. Is that a concern that you have at all, or am I misreading you?
2: No, I I think, and this is one of the points I make in the book, that, that one war always bleeds into another and that one war is always read through many others. Um, and I think that the rhetoric that surrounded these wars, these recent wars, uh, was in many ways indebted to the rhetoric of World War II. I think we hear in the discussion of Ukraine today how indebted the world is to the language and the worldviews that emerged in the Second World War. Um, So I certainly think that my experience over the last 20 years has caused me to look at war in a different way, Um, I, I say in the, in the, the end of the book and I, and I've said elsewhere that, um, I grew up with this myth. My father fought in world war II. And I think I only realized the extent I used to watch old movies with him. And I think the extent to which, uh, my interest in this is personal as well as professional. That's absolutely right. That's a correct reading, Elliot. I think that, um, this war, not Vietnam, which would have been on the radar of many of my peers' parents, but World War II, that was the war I grew up with. That's the war that, through which I first fashioned my own ideas about war more generally. And so I think in an important way, this book began in the very myths of which I've really now grown suspicious. Um, and I, I was alert even as a child to the fact that World War II was being represented as different, special Um, but it wasn't until I began working in military culture that I think I realized the degree to which those myths had shaped my own attitudes toward war in general, or that I recognized the dangers of remembering any war, no matter how justified or necessary, as a kind of romance. Um, I think I came to understand that the mythologizing of war has real human stakes, and those stakes are, in fact, the lives of my colleagues and students and everyone else who's been sent to fight in all the wars that have followed.
0: Let me ask you this, though. You know, you're at great pains, as you were uh, both in the book and at the outset of this conversation, to say that what you're writing about is in no way meant to diminish the sacrifice or to deny that you know the forces against whom we fought in World War II were reprehensible, et cetera. But do you worry at all that by quote demythologizing the good war, that your argument can be put to different use by others by basically suggesting precisely that, that there's really no difference between the sides' wars, just untrammeled evil, and there are no good wars, and there are no noble causes, uh, and it's all really the same. That's a kind of moral equivalence, uh, which, for instance, someone like Vladimir Putin would be very happy to, to trump it today.
2: Well, that's not my argument. Um, if people wish to misconstrue it, I can't. You know, you can't, once you send a book out there, you can't control what your readers will do with it. Um, I think that, I think we need to be, if we're going to find a viable way to understand our history and to understand all the wars that have followed World War II, we have to be able to look honestly at them. I'm reminded of when people say, well, certainly you never teach anything that's anti-war at West Point well, you want me to teach pro-war jingoistic things? You don't want my students to have a nuanced view of war? I guess you don't think very much of them and their capacity uh, to make decisions. And so I think this is not a a pacifist argument, but it is is an argument about the dangers of thinking of war as a good in and of itself. And I think we have plenty of, of evidence that, people do, that it can somehow purge us of things, that it can somehow be redemptive. And I think that that's a very different argument. I don't think wars can do the work of redemption, even when their causes meet generally agreed upon criteria for justice. And I think that being honest and open about that in a democratic society can only be a good thing, um, a positive thing. I'm thinking of, for example, um, one of the stories that I trace in the book is that of the premature anti-fascists, the Paths, as they were called. And you both know well their story, but the idea that those who would be, who fought in the, the Spanish Civil War in vi- technical violation of the U.S. Neutrality Act, the, the idea that then they would be labeled, they would be suspect for being premature in the fight against fascism I think does reveal, to a certain extent, the state of mind um, of Americans at the time. And so I think being honest about that and also acknowledging that we defeated fascism and that that was a necessary thing, I think those things are compatible. But I think we need to be honest about the multiplicity of motives on our side. I think to do otherwise is to live in a kind of fantasy world. And I don't think that helps us. I think we've done too much living in a fantasy world over the last 20 years.
1: Let me jump in. And, and Eric, you should also speak to this. I get what you say about the romanticization of war. I mean, I've had quite ferocious arguments with uh, a number of friends of mine, including one who's a very distinguished public intellectual who doesn't normally deal with military things. Who. Has what I think is a romantic view of war, including of World War II, but also a contemporary conflict. But I will say I and Eric to a much greater degree have seen, you know, presidents and secretaries of state and defense um make the decisions which get you into wars. And and I'm and as just as an historian, I know something about how they do that too. And I can't think of a case where romanticization of war played any role whatsoever as opposed to, you know, a set of beliefs about what was necessary at the time. I know, Eric, you should really, your your experience in government
0: is considerably greater than mine, so you should you should speak more to that. No, I agree with that. Although, in fairness, I would say that Carl Becker wrote a famous presidential address where he said every man is his own, you know, historian. And I think all senior leaders walk around with some sense of history in their heads. Some of it better history than others, but I guess what strikes me is taking into account all the things you say that I agree with about you know we shouldn't romanticize this. It was very complex i mean we we only got into the war after Pearl Harbor was attacked, and then Hitler declared war i mean we we didn't enter the European war as a voluntary act as any number of our of Elliot's and my French colleagues have been pointing out on Twitter in the last few days, but still still having said all that is there no role at all in your mind for mythologizing about war to eliot's opening point it's and really uh, throughout your book i mean you start you know really early in the first chapter talking about the iliad and the mythologizing about the homeric wars and you you talk about uh, lincoln's gettysburg address and pericles funeral oration uh, which eliot and i are both familiar with from teaching it but is there no positive role for mythmaking in war after all, national leaders are demanding of people to do quite extraordinary and uh, even heroic things that's not kind of second nature to most people. Is there no positive role for mythology in in war? It's a, a question I kind of wrestle with myself.
2: Well, if by that do you mean how do how do how does one figure out how to inspire someone to do something extraordinary at great personal risk? is this what you're you're asking?
0: Yeah, I mean how does how does one motivate? I mean, you know, if pericle's funeral oration basically said, you know, well, th- they're just the same as us, you know, go on go on out is really kind of meaningless, you know, it's only about Corinth. It wouldn't have quite the same tone that it has, I guess, is my my point. So, yes, I mean, there is some element I think always of prettifying the objectives and and creating some mythos about why people are going off to to do these you know terrible things
2: well i think i mean we spoke of grant earlier um to to me what's appealing about grant um is that he thought of war i think as a as a as a kind of business right a business in which one did have to motivate people to do un- unpleasant things but not something in which he ever gloried or took a kind of joy or delight in. And I think that the, I mean, there's a seduction to all mythologies. There's a seduction that makes us surrender our reason. We can talk a lot, I suppose, about the different theories of what motivates people in a fight and what motivates them to join a fight. And again, I think that that's probably more wide and and various and that those are different questions, right? What motivates someone to join and what motivates someone to keep going? I think those are very different things often.
0: And in a democracy, I would just add, you know, there's also the question of consoling the families of the fallen. Yes. uh, Who have made a terrible sacrifice and hard to justify, particularly if you're in the business of sending those people off to say, oh, well, it wasn't really for much of anything in the end.
2: But sometimes it isn't. And so what do you do in those circumstances? Again, I'm not suggesting that World War II was one of those fights, right? That it was ultimately, it it did accomplish something, something crucial. Um, But I'm not sure that can be said about the wars that followed. And as a result of that, how do we console? The problem is, I think that we went into these wars with unrealistic expectations and that those expectations, that the template for those expectations, more often than not, go back to World War II and what we were able to accomplish. And I think that's why understanding the war as a kind of aberration and not as a template for all the wars to follow. Um, And despite the fact that I, that I I think you're right, there are very thoughtful senior leaders, there are also a lot of senior leaders and have been who grew up with this most flattering image of the American GI and of what military American military force could accomplish.
1: Yeah. But I, I guess, I mean, this is where, where I'm, I get uncomfortable and I'm absolutely not uncomfortable with the demythologizing and with highlighting so many of the great writers and, uh, and the great films that, that you talk about. But but it does particularly towards the end. there's some parts earlier on where it feels like this is a book about Iraq. It's not actually a book about World War II. Reasonable people can disagree about Iraq. Um, I think that's actually a. I mean, Eric feels this even more strongly than I have since the two of us have debated it, and we we come out on somewhat different sides. And and. The fact is that we didn't wage Iraq in any way like the way we waged World War II. No national mobilization, no increase in taxes, no liberty bonds. I mean, none of that. And I think to put the blame for what, you know, and it's it's obviously perfectly legitimate to say, well, this this was a misguided war, you know, essentially to blame Stephen Ambrose and Tom Brokaw for that, I I think is, you know, it's just too much.
2: Well, I I don't lay it at their doors exclusively. I, I just think that if we, we didn't fight those wars the way we fought World War II, but we certainly threw around the same kind of rhetoric that we did during World War II. I'm thinking about all of the the way we look at the world. So instead of the Axis powers, we have the axis of evil. Deliberate echo. I think we can all agree on that. The idea that the the world can be divided into this manichean um, struggle between good and evil is still with us very much. Um, and I'm, I'm also thinking about one of the things I talk about in the book is, is President Bush's declaration of victory, um, in the war in 2003, where he quotes Isaiah and where he also talks about fighting for the cause of liberty and for peace in the world, he says. Um, and so I, I think that those are, old messages repurposed, recycled. Um, and because they worked once, we somehow think that they might work again. And so I, I think that it's much more widespread. I think the way in which we look at the world has really been through this particular lens. Um, and I think that that has been, that has led us to, to imagine consequences, to imagine eventualities, which don't end up happening.
1: Eric, you, you were really in the thick of that in a way that I was not at the time. And I I, I mean, I, I would actually push back on that. And I, I don't think you can make those. Cl- I think it's hard to make those claims without really digging into what the decision making was like. But Eric, you were you were there. Um, I, could you just speak to that? I think this is an important point, I think.
0: Yeah, well, when I remember when President Bush's speech was circulated and a lot of us paused on the whole axis of of evil point the question of whether north korea you know iraq and iran were in some fundamental fundamental way access of any kind of course is open to doubt although there was and continues to be a lot of interaction between north korea and and iran but putting that to one side I mean, does anyone really think any of those three regimes is not a, an evil regime? I mean, I think all three of them. In the case of Saddam, his regime was in some ways very much modeled on on Stalin and Stalin's uh, Soviet Union. The Iranian, you know, revolution continues to this day to be the world's leading sponsor of terrorism, and you know, and and a huge human rights abuser. North Korea is a, you know, essentially a giant gulag. Uh, So, I mean, you know, I I don't have a problem with using the rhetoric that attended a war that was meant to defeat those kinds of regimes, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. I don't disagree that we shouldn't pretty things up. There were war crimes committed by American soldiers, including in Vietnam. And we've had that, you know, unfortunately, in, in some of the more recent fights. I still think there's a difference in the way we fight than, than the way our adversaries do. I think you can see some of that on display you know, over the weekend. And so I, I worry you know, more than I think you do, Professor Samet, that by trying to debunk the mythology of World War II, I think you do run the risk of, in the end of the day, diminishing the accomplishment. Now, I know you just said that you don't mean to do that. And I'm not suggesting you intended to do it. I think there's a danger uh, that when we do it, that's what we end up with.
2: Can I ask a question of you all in response?
0: Please do. Please.
2: So it's been such a lively conversation and I've enjoyed it. I, I p- Part of me wants to ask a question about rhetoric, but I'm going to hold that aside and ask a question instead about evil regimes and about this question of, of an axis. So one of the things that we have had to do in order to make this scheme work in our minds to make the myth work is to downplay or not talk about our really crucial ally in this war, the Soviet union. So how do we, if, if you want to continue to divide the world into evil regimes and good regimes, what, and you, you suggested that the contemporary axis models itself, a gulag state, I think you called North Korea and you talk about Stalinism, so how then do we navigate our alliance with Stalin?
1: I think Churchill did it best. You know, he uh, when he gives his famous speech, he, you know, it was the famous one where he says, if uh, Hitler invaded hell, he'd make a favorable reference to the devil. Uh, but he begins by saying, I will unsay no word that I've said against it. Uh, and of course, he had been an inveterate opponent of um, of communism. I mean, I do think there's a larger point here, which is correct, which is, is the importance of being honest, or at least of not being dishonest. I, that is that is completely uh, true, I think. And, you know, I, my objection to the axis of evil uh, thing was not so much that they're not evil, they're evil, but it just it wasn't clear to me that they were forming an axis uh, in particular as opposed to right. each doing their their own things. You know, I think as that's why that's the job of historians. I mean, um, it's not, you know, people who are writing novels and films are not going to try to do that because those mediums are not really suitable, I think, for analyzing historical truth. And that's why, you know, I'm such a fervent believer in teaching history, accurate, complicated, difficult history. But I guess my, my core feeling is you can do that. And you can still not make it all seem like a sordid, uh, cynical mess. I mean, there there are plenty of things you can say about the Union during the Civil War and about the people who fought for it uh, and the politics of it. But is there any question in any of our minds that it was a noble cause? I don't I, I don't think so. I think, you know, I was actually going to try to... I, I want to hear what Eric has to say on this. Like, at some point, I would like to drag us into Ukraine because... I mean, how should we phrase that, except yeah. as a conflict between good and evil? I mean, it seems to me it's extraordinarily stark. We should use that rhetoric. A- and it's the use of World War II analogies are, or metaphors, um, more accurately, I think is fine and actually quite appropriate. I, but that, that may be taking us in a different direction.
0: No, I'd like to go in that direction. I agree with you. Uh, I was going to cite Churchill myself. I think Churchill and Roosevelt may have had more illusions about Stalin than, than Churchill did. But I think both of them realized the most immediate threat to world order was the the Nazi threat, as John Lukács has argued in a, a series of very good books about the early months of of World War 2 and at the beginning of first of all the decision by Britain to stand and not seek a separate peace with Hitler and then ultimately the American partnership it came in after Hitler declared war on the US as you rightly point out. So yes, I mean in in my 30-year government career there were plenty of compromises and you have to deal with the realities that you face. But still the larger context I think is, you know, what's important you're quite right, I guess, to point out, you know, the l- lasting influence of isolationism in America, including, uh, in, you know, well into the war. But what's interesting is after the war, you know, the isolationist part is really quite repressed politically in the United States on both the right and the left, you know, only emerges, you know, again, really in the last few years, as you point out, when Trump tries to resuscitate America first. But I, I, I would like to go towards Ukraine, Elliot, and, and talk about that. I mean, it, it does strike me that, you know, that you're right about both uh, how how to see this as a struggle between authoritarianism and democracy. I mean, one could point out that Viktor Urban, who's part of NATO, was just reelected, and he's an authoritarian and pro-Putin. So, I mean, you could point that out. I still think the larger issue is one between authoritarianism and democracy. I'll make an observation, which is... I don't think it's a coincidence that real
1: isolationism began to return in the United States as the World War II generation died out. Uh, and I don't just mean, I mean, people like my mother, who was a teenage teenager during the war, who never served overseas, obviously, uh, was never in government service of any kind. And she was not a political person, but her views of the American role in the world and you know the dangers that were out there were very much shaped by World War II. Um, and she was, like I said, she was very much a, a kind of a moderate. And I, I also, you know, I think too of my father, who uh, served in the occupation and had, he'd been preoccupied with becoming a doctor and has shipped out, his appreciation of what we were fighting for, it's quite clear because I've looked through his letters, uh, back to my mother, actually, who he was hotly pursuing. It only dawned on him after the war as he met displaced persons. And as they told them told them stories. And I think that's that's why I don't discount things like oral histories and later reminiscences because you're right. And there's no question that in the heat of combat, nobody's thinking about the cause. Uh, I think Michael Schauer actually does a brilliant job of that in Killer Angels. But, but that doesn't mean that the cause isn't important. And actually, James McPherson has written um, a book I'm sure you're familiar with for Cause and Comrades, which talks a lot about that. I do want to, we're running out of time, which is terrible, but I do want to uh, maybe to, to end on an area where I'm in, in enthusiastic agreement. And that's that the idea of the greatest generation is really problematic. Uh, like I said, this is, the book feels to me like partly saying, you know, Stephen Ambrose, Tom Broca, boy, you really did a bad job. But but I think the idea of the greatest generation part is that it's a disservice to later generations. It's a disservice uh, because as you say, we had selective service. Everybody pretty much was drafted other than 17-year-olds who could join, volunteer for the Marines. But the idea of the greatest generation, I find problematic because like you, I've known many, many soldiers and I don't think they're in any way worse. And not just soldiers, but all kinds of young people. They're in no way worse uh, or inferior to their the previous generation. But let me ask you then a my concluding question to you, which is really about your students. You know, you give them, as do your colleagues, including in the history department, a, a very nuanced view of the world, and they're lucky to get it from you. I'm just curious, how do you how do you think they process all that as they go off and they clearly stay in touch with you because you're that kind of teacher um, into their military careers? Now, I, you know, as soon as you step out of the door, you're you're focused on surviving ranger school and and things like that, but there's, there's more to it than that. So you could just tell us a little bit about that.
0: And, and before you do, I'm going to sneak in my final question as well, because it builds on Elliot's, which is I'd be very interested in how your students have responded to this book, um, which obviously has disquieted Elliot and and me.
2: (laughs) Well, as to the first question, I think that they, they, they process it in different ways. I think I was just having a conversation with a a former student who's now a Lieutenant Colonel and served in Afghanistan, multiple tours. And he said that he grew up on the myths, that he got them at West Point, that he got them elsewhere. He thought about them from time to time. And these aren't just myths about World War II, but to, to speak to your larger question of war and myth in general. And that even though he saw the worst of things he still clung to that myth until finally in his third deployment and things happened to um finally as he as he phrases it to sort of make him see behind that and i think it's an issue that he's still wrestling with that in some ways he knows he needed to tell himself certain stories uh, joan didion um has that wonderful phrase you we tell ourselves stories Really, in order to live, right? in order to get up in the morning and make sense of the day. And I think anyone who has a myth about his or her profession or life will one day awaken to some kind of complication. And I've seen it happen in really disturbing ways to to peers um, who I think are, are far too old in life to have, this, to have preserved some of these myths, and I think they find it absolutely devastating and crushing. Um, and I th- think that developing a nuanced relationship to one's military service and developing an ideas of its complexities early on can help to reaffirm and reinforce and deepen the notion of service. And I think in the end, anyone who stays in the military for very long has to do that in order to combat on the one hand against complete disillusion and cynicism, um, and on the other, a complete fantasy world, which will be destroyed one day um, when when one finds oneself in exigent circumstances. Um, So I I really think it's important for them to to figure that out earlier rather than later, Um, rather than concealing these difficult aspects of war from students. I think they need to know it early on.
1: And to Eric's question about specifically reactions to this book, actually, I'm also curious, you know, colleagues and particularly military colleagues and and so on.
2: Well, for the most part, the reaction has been quite positive. I haven't talked about this with my students. Um, I I will teach, I have taught and I will teach a, a war literature course centered on World War II, in which we explore a wide variety of texts um, as rich uh an array as I can as I can muster. Um so I haven't really had many conversations yet uh to my with my students. They're too busy reading for, for class, I think, to to read this book quite yet.
1: Well I I just want to say then turn it over to Eric to finish up that I think it does say something I think quite impressive about the United States military and specifically about West Point that the faculty includes people like you who are willing to Ask some fairly disturbing questions, and you know it's a statement of confidence actually of self confidence which is appropriate and i'll you know and I also think that there's no question in my mind that your your students are in some way made better officers um as well as better human beings by having to wrestle with these kinds of issues, and so they're they're lucky to have you um as their as their teacher and Thank uh thanks. Thanks for submitting to a grilling from these two old white guys. Well,
2: thank you. It was a spirited, spirited conversation, and I appreciate the care with which you read the book.
0: Well, thank you very much, um, Elizabeth Samet, for uh, agreeing to be on uh, Shield of the Republic. We're delighted to, to have you um, and discuss your book, Looking for the Good War. And Hopefully, um, when you have your next book under your belt, uh, we can have you back.
2: Sounds good.